Welcome to the Etobicoke Historical Society's monthly oral history podcast. This podcast is one of a series of interviews of senior Etobicoke residents in the 1980s. The interview tapes were recently discovered in the local history room at Richview Public Library. We would like to thank the Toronto Public Library for giving them back to us so they could be made into these podcasts. These oral histories are a valuable and unique view into the history of Etobicoke in the early part of the 20th century, as seen through the personal experiences of local residents. We will be presenting a different interview each month. We hope you enjoy them. I'm speaking to Madge Michelle, whose father was Canon Robert Green? Uh, no, Richard Green. R.W.E. Green. R.W.E. Green, uh, of the Islington area. Now, um, you were one of the few families in the Islington area when you grew up in here that weren't um, uh, farming. What was, was there any difference? Uh, did they, people treat you differently because you weren't a farming family or? No, I don't believe so. We were, in 1918, uh, considered by our Toronto friends a pioneering family. They said we'd come to the backwoods of Canada to make a new home. But no, my father was accepted uh, as a, a very active clergyman in the chaplaincy service of the Church of England and uh, very much beloved by everybody in the community. And uh, we seemed to fit into a very happy uh, Nick in the whole, or niche in the whole place. Now, uh, what was it like being a uh, daughter of a of a minister? Well, I think that uh, it was a. I think it was a very fine way to live. Uh, my parents were respected. Uh, they uh, had a background of culture which uh, meant that you took part perhaps in uh, more uh, interesting social life in Toronto and Islington. When I say social, I mean more the cultural. Um, I don't think my friends treated me any differently from just one of them. Occasionally I can remember that shh, just coming and, and a story would stop, but uh, I didn't think much of that. I, I think that I respected my father so much that I could not have acted other than what I would expect, he would expect of me because of that very close bond. Is there anything, do uh, you think your, your upbringing was stricter than most people's because of? Well, it was strict in certain ways. My father was a great believer in uh, keeping Sunday um, as a Sunday. Uh, toys and uh, secular books, things like that. Newspapers were always put away and, and uh, on Sunday you read a Sunday book. <laughs> or you you, um, you didn't play games that a small child would play during the week because Sunday was a very different day. I think perhaps it made it lovelier because your, uh, your year broke up into different seasons and, uh, and Sunday really meant something. It was a great day for people coming out to visit. My father was very busy through his active years in the ministry. Of course, Sunday was a day when he would hold a great many services. 
uh, at the Dome Jail and the reformatories and the creche and the sick children's hospital and so on. So, um, but uh, I think that uh, the strictness was just in that sort of thing, uh, not in uh, actual behavior. He was the most understanding person in the world there. So what would you be doing on a, on a typical Sunday? Well, we'd be getting up and having breakfast, and then I would go off to Sunday school, which was before the 11 o'clock morning service. And my father and mother would come on, uh, would walk up Montgomery Road and Dundas to St. George's Church. Um, and my father would always help Mr. Holdsworth, or Mr. Holdsworth, during the service. And then we would walk home again and have uh, it was never a hot dinner on Sunday. In a clergyman's family, your hot dinner is on a Saturday, and your roast is cold for Sunday because there are too many other things to do. And then we would have a quiet time in the afternoon, and then have, uh, often it would be tea or supper, and we'd go to the 7 o'clock service in the evening. As I got older, there would be a Bible class in the afternoon, and I would be teaching Sunday school in the morning. Now, uh... Is there anything that uh, your father wouldn't wouldn't allow you? Well, I can remember as a small child, um, there was a dancing teacher in Islington who took dancing uh, classes at the Islington Public School once a week. And uh, when I would leave in the afternoon to go home, I would hear this sprightly music. Generally, it started with country gardens as a limber up, and uh, the girls would uh, all have these seemingly beautiful outfits on and I would love to have taken dancing but my father didn't feel it was uh, quite the thing for a little girl. Uh, this was ballet? Yes, this was ballet and tap. But there, he allowed other types of dancing? Oh, oh yes, yes. I learned to dance uh, in my teens in a normal way. It was just that he, uh, he didn't really want me to take uh, ballet dancing. You say, uh, you had quite a few visitors here. What? Well, uh, my father, of course, at the time I'm speaking of, when I was a small child, was in his middle 60s. He had been a widower many years and remarried. So he had had a number of different parishes, and he had a great many friends. And uh, he was rector of Aurelia for 23 years. So many, many people from Aurelia went in Toronto, would come out and visit. Uh, this was open house to anybody in Islington, and uh, uh, also we used to have a great many weddings in our home. This was not exactly a Gretna Green, but uh, very often he had to check very carefully to make sure that the young couple had their license and that uh, it was quite proper to marry them. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, why would people come to your father for, for a wedding? I think because the they weren't connected with a church. They were people who really, uh, in those days, to go to a clergyman in a church and ask to be married, you should be a parishioner. And uh, they had let their religion slip until they suddenly realized they wanted to be married. And, and uh, he would be very willing to marry them if everything, as I say, was in order. Uh, I must say that he got a number of checks which they would leave stuck under a, a book or something, and many of these bounced. <laughs> Quite often they would come and forget a ring, and my mother would have to supply a ring for the ceremony, and then they 
very grudgingly gave it back to her at the end of the ceremony. <laughs> but that didn't happen too often. Oh, well. I think one other thing, I, I think I knew the complete wedding service from our uh, prayer book of the Church of England by about five. I'd heard it so many times I was allowed to very quietly stand in the in the drawing room and listen to the service and by five I could prompt my father if he seemed to slow up at any spot. <laughs> what sort of, uh, as, a, as a child, what sort of uh, social activities would there be? Well, I think there were uh, very, very worthwhile social activities. Um, they centered primarily around your church uh, where there would be Sunday school picnics, there'd be garden parties, there would be Christmas um, uh, Christmas concerts, uh, and there'd be all kinds of activity there. Then the Islington Public School, which was built in, I believe, 1921, um, had uh, an auditorium and a stage with two changing rooms on either side of the stage, uh, with the idea of it being a community center and uh, from the time I was a very small child we had some extremely fine concerts. Uh, sometimes they'd be plays put on by a local um, society, uh, amateur theatrical society. Sometimes they would be of course the school concerts. The homeschool club would feature a great concert every Christmas. And uh, sometimes there would be traveling um, singers, uh, minstrel shows, all kinds of things would go on in that school, and the community would turn out to a great degree. Do you remember any one concert or play? Well, I remember one concert. My father was very often chairman. He was a very happy, friendly, jovial person. He made a good chairman, and uh, this particular concert um, was a little bit heavily loaded with the uh, the children from the dancing class, and uh, almost every other number was a uh, a dance, a dancing presentation. And uh, at the end of this concert, Mr. J. W. L. McPherson, who was quite a prominent uh, person in Islington and owned a great deal of property. And from whom we bought our property, he came up to my father and said, Well, Canon, you don't have to go to Paris or the Follies anymore. Come right here to Islington Public School. And my father put his hands up in front of his face and sort of shook his head as much as say, Dear, dear. <laughs> Wasn't really shocked, but <laughs> it was a little bit of a joke. Did you participate in any of these uh, plays? Oh, yes, quite often in the, uh, the Christmas concert. Uh, the... Um, Children in, in various rooms would be well represented. Every teacher would have a chance to to put on some sort of an affair or a concert. But what uh, what uh, role did, did you play? Well, when I was in, in uh, I guess it was called the Primer, that was grade one. I can remember I was Mistress Mary, quite contrary, in a in some sort of a little play, and uh, the women of the of the school, or of the home and school, uh, were very expert in using Denison's crepe paper. It was quite a famous material in the early 20s, 
Uh, and you could make almost anything out of it. It stretched in a terrific way, and uh, all our costumes were made out of Denison's crepe paper, and that mine was really quite a beautiful. It was a masterpiece of a costume, and I don't think I had many lines to say, but um, I think that it made quite an impression on, on me to be able to take part in this. Now, the uh, church uh, in, in small communities always plays an important role not only in the religious aspect, but in the social aspect as well. What sort of uh, different events would they put on? Well, um, the two that stand out in my mind would be the Christmas concert in the church and the Sunday school picnic. Those were two very important events. And then latterly, uh, when I was a bit older, um, our garden parties, St. George's which is now known as St. George's on the Hill. St. George's held their garden party at the F.T. James estate. And uh, the James were very active members of our church, and that was a, an event that was well known throughout the province, I might almost say. We had people from all over come to this garden party because their, gar their gardens, as you know now, are, are very, very fine. And in those days, Mr. James had about nine gardeners, so. That was a great event once a year, and uh, the Sunday school picnic uh, generally meant going to Center Island, and we tried to get a concession that was very near the merry-go-round, so a great thing to do would be to leave the, the uh, rather amateurish baseball game that was in progress and go and have a ride on the merry-go-round and then come back to the picnic. and. I have salmon sandwiches. I can remember salmon sandwiches and lemonade. They were the standbys of the old Sunday school picnics. Are there many, uh, other than the merry-go-round, were there other many, many rides on the Center Island? No, I think, I think the merry-go-round was the only thing. I, I think so. It was a beautiful, um, it was a beautiful island then. Uh, of course, there were many people living in on wards and on center toward the lakeside, and uh, there was a. Um, one of my father's uh, charges during the summer months was a, a hospital for a sick children's hospital, but uh, cases that could be transferred would be there for the summer. And there were beds, there were dozens and dozens of beds out in rows, out under the trees, and it was a beautiful sort of a convalescent hospital uh, that was toward uh, Hanlon's point. But no, as far as actual um, uh, entertainment, I think perhaps uh, the merry-go-round was the big thing. What about the uh, Christmas concert? Oh yes, the, the Christmas concert. Um, in the early days, when I was a very small child, St. George's Church consisted of a small church and a basement. Now, everything that was held other than our services had to be held in that basement. and. Um, there was a door on the east end under the chancel. You would step down one step into this basement, and there was a huge pot-bellied stove in front of you as you entered. And uh, that stove was uh, going from, I suppose, October to March, April. And uh, if you were very young, if you were one of the young children, you sat very close to that stove. And as you got older, you were the classes for Sunday school were progressively farther away from the stove, so uh, 
when you're a teenager, you're supposed to have very warm blood, I guess, because you would freeze down at the other end of this little basement. And the only other way to get in was a little staircase that went up into the um, porch, into the front porch of the church. Now, um, Sunday school concerts were held there, uh, uh, Christmas concerts, and there would be a tree and there would be live candles on the tree. This is always so amazing. My husband remarks on the same thing in Orillia at his church. There would be a huge tree and it would be one mass of lighted candles. And uh, certainly there must have been some power looking over us other than ourselves because it could have been disaster if it had caught fire. But it never did. And I think that uh, each child got uh, a candy cane, a Christmas candy cane, and uh, a small little paper book, oh, a few pages of a book, and this was considered really wonderful. We were so grateful for it, and uh, it was a, a lovely time. What would that book be, sort of a religious? Yes, a religious book, yes. Uh, and if you happen to, uh, to stand fairly high in your Sunday school class, because they really were fairly formal classes, we would learn certain things, and would write little examinations, you were perhaps mentioned as being the top student in, in that particular class. One other thing that I do remember so distinctly uh, at the church was that each time, each time you attended Sunday school, you received a little text. It was a little, looked like a postage stamp or a little larger, and it had a little text from the Bible on it. And when you got 10 texts, you got a larger card. And when you got, well, I'm not sure now, five larger cards or 10 larger cards, then you got a prayer book. But this represented about four years of uh, unbroken attendance. <laughs> and a lot of us had our prayer books. But uh, we really worked toward those, getting those little texts. Anyone frown upon people who were sort of didn't have many of uh, those little texts? or? You know, in those days, the church was such an important part of your life that we would look around the service, the, the church in the morning, and if someone wasn't there, we'd say, oh, Mrs. So-and-so must be ill. Uh, even children, you simply attended because your friends all attended, and it was the thing to do. So I think that some children who perhaps lived a fair distance away, and some some winter days would be pretty difficult for them to get there unless they, their father pitched up the team and they came on a sleigh or something. There would be children who couldn't make it and therefore we just took for granted if they weren't there they couldn't be. But no, I don't think there was any uh, real discrimination between those that had them and those that didn't. Did you go on many uh, day trips or overnight trips somewhere? or picnics or anything like that? Um, the day trips when I was quite young were often either to the island or to um, the Humber. There was a very favorite picnic ground immediately north of the old bridge at the old mill on the Humber. Of course, there was no Bloor Viaduct in those days. The Bloor Street went down a very steep hill and across the little bridge at the old mill and then up another steep hill. 
And north of that bridge, I was quite a favorite picnic ground. People from the city would come out and we would often go and uh, we would paddle, as we called it, in the river. We didn't swim and there weren't many places that it was really deep enough for swimming, but we did paddle in the river. But later, in later years, we were horrified to find that uh, all the, the raw sewage from the Western Sanitarium, TV San, uh, dumped into that river in the early days. People didn't think anything of that. Uh, and so, uh, goodness knows what would have happened if a person had been a constant swimmer there. I guess there were those that were, but uh, we didn't think of it. We just went paddling, which meant lifting your skirts well above your knees and walking around in the water. Now the, uh, well, the time with the Humber River, there was a, I guess one of the few odd characters in, around uh, Etobicoke lived down there, the Humber Hermit. Yes, yes, that was Mr. Pierce. Uh, Mr. Pierce, I think, had been quite a prominent man in his day. His son was a Toronto alderman at the time my father first heard of him, and uh, he gave up his normal city life and uh, built a little shack, that's the best description of it, around a tree, a huge tree, I think it was an oak, uh, and it was this tree under which he had proposed to his wife. And he lived in this little shack, summer and winter, for many, many years. He was eventually found dead in the shack, but he had lived there for many years before this, and uh, not many people knew about him, which was rather a good thing. He, he wanted privacy. There were a few people up on, it was called Lampton Avenue in those days, it would be Prince Edward now, uh, in the farm, in the farms there, who knew he was there and would take down bread or, or a pie or a cake or various things for him, but uh, he somehow existed and seemed very happy and birds were his great passion and he used to go to a dump at the back of the cemetery, Park Lawn Cemetery, and he would retrieve these uh, wicker baskets that had been put on graves full of flowers and he had these hanging all over his little domain down halfway down the hill toward the Humber River and uh, he would fill them with um, with seeds and bread and, and he had thousands of birds come and feed there. But he was a very he was tall, white hair, very gentlemanly, very lovely manner. And I can remember when we went once or twice to visit him, he insisted on making us a cup of tea. I must say the housekeeping was not exactly uh, conducive to enjoying a cup of tea, but we took it anyway. We wouldn't hurt his feelings, and uh, he was quite a character. Uh, when he died, people suddenly thought maybe he was uh, had money hidden, uh, and his poor little hut was ransacked and pulled apart, and they say a week after he was found, there was nothing, there was hardly anything left there to show he'd been there. What, uh, what year did he die? Oh dear, I wish I knew. I think I'd be in my middle teens. I, I'm really not sure. I, I should, 
I should double check that and give you that date later. There is one family, the Umblebees, who lived about, the, who had a, a farm closest to him, and um, uh, Lila Umblebee married the Reverend uh, C.W. Holdsworth's son, Kenneth Holdsworth, and I believe she is still living, and uh, I, she would know really more about him than anybody because they were they were very good to him but I think that he died in the um, very very early 30s or late 20s now where would people do their shopping uh, from here? Well, basically, um, we shopped at Eaton's and Simpson's in downtown Toronto. Except for a few stores in the village of Islington, everyone really shopped at Eaton's or Simpson's. Now, Eaton's had a, a service of two deliveries a day. Uh, mother used to buy all her groceries from 1918 to, oh, I guess 1928 or so from Eaton. She would phone up on a Friday and give her order and Saturday morning everything would arrive. And uh, it was a great convenience. Uh, you could phone up uh, for almost anything you wanted. It, they delivered uh, very small things because the the trucks were on the road and so therefore you got a very good service. Simpsons were very much the same. I don't know that they had the food service that uh, Eaton's did, but they gave you very good delivery. So going down to, it was always bunched together, to Eaton's and Simpsons, uh, you, you did your shopping there. Now there was one exception. In Islington there was a hardware store known as Kirkby's and it still exists to this very day. And my father thought the world of Mr. Kirkby. Uh, he was a splendid merchant. He had an excellent variety of, of things and if he didn't have it he would get it. So uh, as far as hardware was concerned, you were well supplied. Um, there was a store uh, known as the Dunn's store, Dunn's General Store, which was used to be where the donut shop is now, just on the west side of the bridge on Dundas Street, and it was a complete story in itself. It was a post, the post office where you went each day to get your mail, and it was also a general store. And uh, many, many funny incidents are in my mind are, are centered around that store. My father had a great friend in Orillia who was known as Bruce Murphy. Now he was the inventor of the Mama doll, the first doll ever in the world that said Mama. He'd been working on this many years and so he told my father that when the first doll was was produced uh, he was going to send it to me, to Hannah Green's daughter. So one day we got a, a frantic phone call from the Dunn store to rush up there. Uh, old Miss Dunn had a big parcel had come in, a huge parcel, and she turned it over to see the address, and the parcel had said, Mama, very clearly. And <laughs> <laughs> so 
So my father went up and put her mind at ease that it was a doll. She couldn't believe it. In those days, it, the early ones, the Bruce Murphy, or really early ones, were clearer even than many of the mechanisms later. So that was always quite a joke. Any other stories out of Dunn's? Well, uh, Miss Dunn seemed to be able to keep track of just what was going on very nicely as long as people wrote postcards. Letters were a different matter, but she would say, I say that so-and-so's uh, out of town this weekend or so. But, no, she, they, she and her brother ran this store, I think, and then there was a there's a, a younger lad who went through public school with me, Frank Dunn. Uh, neck near Dunn's, just uh, going west from Dunn's, was a um, blacksmith shop. Now that was a terrific thing in a small town. As children, we would stop on the way home from school and uh, stand and watch the blacksmith. And I can still smell that smell of the burning hoof and of the uh, sizzle as the hot uh, shoe went on to the horse's foot and the sound of, of a blacksmith pounding away on the anvil. That was a glorious place in our young days. Uh, there was a feed uh, store farther up next to, I guess it would be next to the Islington Hotel, which in those days wasn't really just a beverage room, it was a sort of a hotel. But uh, your, the majority of your shopping was uh, downtown at Eaton's or Simpson's, or perhaps if you were looking for something in the way of, of good jewelry or a good gift, Burke's was a very, Burke's Ellis Ryrie was a very famous name. Now when you went downtown to Eaton's and Simpson's, uh, uh, did you make a day out of it or? Yes. Uh, uh, generally, um, you would make a day out of it. You'd go in the morning and you'd nearly always have luncheon either at uh, Eaton's or Simpson's. They both had very fine restaurants and it was an occasion and you'd come home later in the afternoon, sometimes carrying things if you just couldn't bear to wait for them to be delivered the next day, but generally speaking they would be whatever you had bought would be delivered the next day. What about the, uh, the telephone system here? Well, that was an extremely interesting situation. We had a, a, a ho there was a home on Dundas Street, which would be about halfway up the hill, more or less across from where the old Methodist church was, uh, and it was owned by the New Loves. The, the house, the red brick house, is still there, and at the back of this house, in a back room, I guess what had been a kitchen, was the telephone exchange. And uh, Miss, New, uh, Miss um, Mason, which, who was Mrs. Newlove's sister, uh, was the operator. We did, I'm sorry, not a, it would be operator now, but we always called her Central. Uh, Central was the name given to the person who, who was at the, the telephone board. And uh, she was a wonderful person. She knew everybody in the district, the voice of everybody, and she was very helpful and very friendly and uh, just typical of the old uh, telephone operator. Does one incident uh, strike you that uh, 
of where she was really yes there was one rather amusing incident uh, my father and mother and I had been at a dinner party in a home in Toronto and our hostess was quite renowned for reading teacups and when she was reading my father's teacup she looked and she burst out laughing and she said oh Cannon, you're going to lose your trousers and uh, to the assembled group this very dear uh, uh, rather prim and proper clergyman uh, looked at her and smiled and, and everybody smiled and it seemed a very amusing incident but uh, the next week my father had gone down to Eaton's and Simpson's as I had said and he had bought a few things because it was starting to get pretty warm in the summer and one thing that he bought were a pair of light summer pants and uh, when he got home he found he didn't have the parcel so he said to my mother oh dearie I I lost my pants and mother said oh for goodness sake that's what Mrs. Goff said you would do and so he laughed so he phoned up Miss Mason and she said hello Kenneth what can I how can I help you he said well you'll have to find my pants I I went down and bought a pair at Eaton's and I've lost them she said don't you worry so about half an hour later she phoned back and said well I found your pants they were on the Dundas streetcar <laughs> so it was amazing when nowadays you phone an operator and you get maybe two or three words out of them in their rushed state that this woman could take such an active part in the community as a whole and be so helpful what about the, the fashion of that that time what uh, what would what would the woman wear uh, fashion certainly has changed radically I have many pictures of garden parties now when I say a garden party in this case I mean at a private home people inviting uh, friends for uh, a summer afternoon uh, afternoon tea and all of the guests would arrive in hats and gloves and even the hostess if she once left her house and was out in the garden would be wearing a summer hat and not just a sun hat but a, a formal hat draped with feathers or silk and ribbons and uh, so that was a very different thing from nowadays when you see people at parks and uh, down at the city hall in a halter top and a pair of shorts. Uh, another thing that's rather interesting, I wanted to get myself a little pair of summer gloves, white gloves, and I went to Eaton's the other day and first I couldn't find any glove counter at all and then I found about a five foot length of counter at the end of the sun tops and bathing suits and uh, I asked for summer gloves and she said oh, we only have gloves for a wedding and I said well I'm not going to a wedding and I looked at them and these gloves were I think $45 they were white kid I said no that really isn't what I had in mind and they did have a few string gloves they were ghastly looking things they were made somewhere out of Canada and uh, that was about it so certainly the the wearing of gloves over a period of time has changed very radically. As uh, you mentioned, the, uh, everyone wore fairly large, large hats that, uh, in the summertime. Was that was uh, the people not, did not like to get tans? And 
I think it was considered, um, beauty was considered uh, the having of a, of a fairly uh, light skin through the summer months. Um, this, of course, was very true of a certain class of people who, with servants, who didn't have to uh, be out in the in the sun, as a, as opposed to, let's say, farm women who would help their husbands uh, in the fields or, or in the garden. Um, they, the sign of, of uh, no tan was a sign of, of luxury. Nowadays, we almost reverse it. The sign of a good tan, particularly in the winter, is the sign of luxury. It means you've been south or, or you have lots of leisure time to get that tan. I might say that um, uh, Montgomery Road, the road on which I live, has um, changed very radically. When we moved out here in 1918, there were really just three houses on the, on the road. There was the little white house that now is just south of the uh, separate school. There was a farmhouse that was north a little way from that on the same side, on the west side, and it had a large barn and silo. And then there was a little house at the top of Montgomery Road uh, on the east side, just near Dundas, in which the Chambers lived. Um, of course, there was still Montgomery's Inn on, the, uh, on Dundas Street, near the top of Montgomery Road. Now, uh, when my father moved out here, he bought property from uh, Mr. McPherson. He chose this particular lot. None of it was subdivided, but he chose this because there were three beautiful pine trees on it, and he loved the pines, one of which for fortunately still standing on this property. And uh, he built here, he built this home with his own two hands, a clergyman of 68 who'd never done anything like that before, but it was the only way he could be sure Mother and I would have a home if anything happened to him. And even our, our rector, Mr. Holsworth, would come down, and he was a very practical person, and sometimes the two of them would be up on the roof putting on shingles or, or doing something, so uh, that was interesting in itself. But uh, when I was about Five, the barn uh, of the farmhouse burnt down. That was quite a spectacular fire. But prior to that, we had got all our milk from that farm. We used to go up each day with a, a jug and a smaller jug, a jug for milk and a smaller jug for cream, and they would dip the milk out of a, a, a big a tank, it looked like a cement tank set down into the ground in the milk house and the, uh, they would scoop the, the cream off the top into our jug and then give us some milk and uh, that was our milk supply for many many years. Then uh, shortly after we moved here there was a man by the name of Mr. Hughes who owned some property on the east side of Montgomery Road. Now that was all fields. It was just fields from Montgomery Road through to what is Royal York now. 
uh, well, actually, right through to uh, to uh, almost the Humber. Uh, there's no building in there except for the odd farm. Uh, but then the houses on the east side of Montgomery Road were gradually built. Now, uh, what would, uh, uh, for meeting your husband, how would, what would sort of the things would uh, a young couple would do on a courting? <laughs> Where would they go? Uh, well, uh, let me see now. Uh, my husband had attended my father's parish in Orillia. He'd been, a, as a matter of fact, my father had baptized my, my husband as a baby, but I didn't live in Orillia. That was long before my time, so uh, I just knew him through visiting in the summer. And uh, I guess we had our first date when uh, my mother and I went up to St. James for the unveiling of a bronze tablet to my father there. And uh, I think our second date was a, a football game at Varsity. And uh, <coughs> we used to, uh, we used to love to, uh, to hike, to go for long walks, and to go to Center Island, and uh, see some of the, the good movies that were on through the winter months. Is there a sort of a popular spot in, uh, around Islington for, for couples to go if you wanted to get, a, get away from the parents for a while? Well, I wouldn't know that. I imagine there were lots of lovers' lanes, but uh, I don't think my courting exactly took me to lovers' lanes. <laughs> it was perhaps a little bit more formal. I had just graduated from teacher's college, and uh, my father died at Easter. I was writing exams at that time, and uh, it was that terrible year of 34, 33, 34, where there were no teaching jobs in the whole province of Ontario, absolutely none. And uh, actually, I, I had the 850 at teacher's college that year, and I had been lucky enough to be one of ten offered a city job, which was quite wonderful, but I gave my address as 18 Montgomery, no, not 18, the Pines, Islington, and uh, that was a mistake. Uh, they suddenly said, oh, you're not a Toronto girl, you live in Islington, and so that ruled out my chance of teaching. So uh, I, I taught a private kindergarten for just that winter, and then my husband said, this is ridiculous. We're going to get married. We're going to get married sooner or later. So we're going to get married now. You're not going to struggle on like this, like these poor school teachers are doing. I suppose we're coming around to that period again now, where teachers would love to have more work than there is. Though uh, Madge Mitchell is uh, quite a bit younger and did not um, live in the period 1900 to 1920, only there for only part of it for a couple of years, she, because of her uh, education that she did receive, uh, which was higher than most people's, uh, she, her, she got the training to be able to understand and be able to remember various things, such as the, the smells coming out of the blacksmith shop and of the cultural events which uh, many people um, have not yet have, have not remembered. 
So I think in this sense that this interview with Madge Michelle has been quite enlightening uh, in bringing about presenting a lot more in-depth uh, material on on the life of uh, people in Islington and in Etobicoke in general. Thanks for listening to the Etobicoke Historical Society's Oral History Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and like. If you wish to learn more about the work of our society, be sure to visit www.etobicohistorical.com. See you next month!